Blog Talk Radio. WIJSF.com. Women in Jazz South Florida Inc. is a nonprofit educational organization that promotes women musicians globally through events, concerts, performances, clinics, lectures, workshops, articles, interviews, newsletters, courses, contacts, research, history, archives, websites, film, audio and video recordings, and recognition. Visit us at WIJSF.com. You're listening to blogtalkradio.com slash musicwoman with your host, Diva JC. This is Dr. Diva J.C., and I'm in sunny South Florida, where it is cooling down, thank goodness, because we had some hot weather. But it's nice and breezy, and I'm going to bring in my guest, who you just heard playing Rachmaninoff's Prelude in F minor. Nina Kennedy, Hello. Hello, Joan. So glad to be with you. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so you are in New York City, is that correct? That's right. That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, and I have a 16-minute piece that you sent me, and it's giving some very interesting background. So... I want to know, do you want me to play that? And then we come back and discuss some more. Sure, I can uh, set it up a little bit for you. Um, okay. This is, a reco- this is a recording of um, some readings from my memoir that's out, that's been published by uh, Dorrance Publishers. It's titled Practicing for Love, a Memoir. 
And um, in the beginning, in fact, we just uh, we just learned that uh, we've been nominated for a Lambda Literary Award, which I'm very excited about. But um, in what you're about to hear, um, there's a performance at the um, uh, that was done in Vienna at the Bersendorfer Salon of uh, Schumann's Wiedmung that uh, I have a music video out of. Uh, you can Google that and find that online. But there's a reading from the book and then the performance and then a second reading and another performance that was done here in New York at the um, Dixon Place Theater. And that's a performance of another Rachmaninoff prelude. It's the prelude in G-sharp minor. So you get two readings and two performances. And the second one was live. It was a live performance in front of a live audience. Okay. So I'm going to play that. And we will be back in 16 minutes. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. okay. Thank you. My parents both attended Fisk as undergraduates. They saw each other as rivals while they were piano students. Both went elsewhere for graduate school, he to Juilliard, she to Oberlin. When they both returned to teach at Fisk, the sound of wedding bells was not far off. My father took the role as director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 1957, when his predecessor, John W. Work III, fell ill. Before then, he had served as piano accompanist for the group, when it was directed by Mrs. James A. Myers while he was an undergrad. When my father served his country in World War II, my mother was piano accompanist under John W. Work. When my parents married in 1956, it was the talk of the campus. Charles S. Johnson, grandfather of the former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama, J. Charles Johnson, was the first black president of Fisk gave my parents their wedding since my mother's father had been killed when she was a child. The Johnsons admired my mother's playing and were pleased and honored to have her on the faculty at Fisk. When I was born four years later, my parents later told me that I had to be placed at the front of the display room for newborns in the hospital because so many came in asking to see the Kennedy baby. Jokes and insinuations abounded that I would be a child prodigy. When asked if they had a boy or girl, their answer was, it's a pianist. And so it was. I would observe them teaching their students during their lessons and would memorize the pieces they were learning. My ear was so overly developed and no one realized that I could not see the sheet music placed in front of me. I wouldn't get my glasses until I was nine years old because a teacher from school called to tell my parents that I couldn't see the blackboard. So for the first nine years of my life, I never saw the stars. My parents were the kind of socially responsible citizens who felt it necessary to integrate previously segregated restaurants. We as a family attempted to enter Morrison's cafeteria when I was very small. The first time, the manager of the restaurant blocked the door with his body and bellowed, you can't come in here. This is a southern chain. Such intimidation did not stop my parents. They kept coming back until we were finally allowed to order our food and sit at a table. I'm sure that some of the staff were happy to see us, and some of them weren't. Morrison's was close to the Fisk campus, 
so it was convenient for us to be able to go there for dinner. I don't remember the exact details of all that was happening. However, I do remember the stress my parents were feeling based on their body language and their insistence that I be on my absolute best behavior, which meant no loud talking and no getting up and running around. Other white children were running around and playing, but I was not allowed that privilege. It made me wonder what was so special about them that they got to laugh and play and be loud, and I didn't. Occasionally, my mother would bring me into Fisk Jubilee Singer's rehearsals, which took place during the evenings. I was always very popular with the students. They would run over to pick me up and put me on their laps. I remember one incident at home when I wanted to sit in my father's lap. He was sitting in the big green lounge chair, and I put my hands on his knees, trying to climb up. But he looked down at me like I was a stranger. I knew that other people seemed to enjoy lifting me up and placing me in their laps, but evidently he was uncomfortable with that kind of affection. I never saw him display any physical affection toward any child. I was always an only child. My parents were both 40 years old when I was born, so the children of their friends and colleagues were much older than I was. They lived in a house on campus when I was born and then moved to a house in the suburbs when I was three years old. My mother had bought that house during one of her many emotional breakdowns, which would put her in the hospital for a rest. She had seen the ad for the house in the newspaper and made a down payment without consulting her husband. She felt that the way their old neighborhood had deteriorated was a contributing factor in her breakdown. Their marriage suffered greatly as a result of her insistence on moving.
Every February, I could count on being hired by orchestras for Black History Month concerts. The concert budgets for February were the smallest of the year, but African-American artists and musicians were able to get some work, at least. When the Jackson, Mississippi Symphony invited me to appear as piano soloist, I told them I would do the Brahms D minor piano concerto. I felt the rhythms were funky and totally appropriate for a Black History Month concert. And looking at some photos on the hair piled on top of Brahms's head, there was probably some African blood in that mix. It also called for a full orchestra. For the same concert, the Mississippi Symphony had invited the composer Anthony Davis to give a talk on his work. They had programmed his piece, Notes from the Underground. It was the first time Anthony and I actually met. I had been in the audience for his opera, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, at the New York City Opera, but we weren't introduced then. Beth insisted on coming to Mississippi for the performance. She had chosen my clothing from Soho stores and had decided that my marketing image had to be consistent, even in Jackson, Mississippi. The day before the concert, Anthony and I were invited to speak before the Mississippi State Legislature while in session. There was a group of black children on a field trip from school in the building. Anthony spoke first. He thanked the Mississippians for inviting him and performing his work. Then it was time for me to speak. I walked up to the podium. Suddenly, the countless numbers of lynched black men whose bodies had been fished out of the Mississippi River flashed through my mind. As some of you may know, I grew up on the Fisk University campus. Running around as a child, I would hear strains of Bach and Beethoven coming from my mother's piano studio, and then around the corner, I would hear strains of the spirituals as sung by the Fisk Jubilee Singers, directed by my father. And I learned then that music I'll pause for dramatic effect, was the vehicle for bringing the races together. Suddenly I was interrupted by loud applause begun by one of the black male members of the legislature. The applause spread throughout the room. I guessed I was finished. I thanked everyone and relinquished the microphone to the conductor. The concert was a huge success. Anthony even complimented me on my hip clothes. Beth and I flew back to New York, and I had a nice little check in my pocket. The next day, while unpacking, I turned on CNN to see what was happening in the world. And then came the announcement. The Mississippi State Legislature voted today to officially abolish slavery in that state more than 130 years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln, etc., etc. Slavery was still legal in the state of Mississippi while I played the Brahms Piano Concerto with their state symphony. In 1995, I had no idea.
Yes. Nine. Kennedy. Very interesting. Thank you. And exquisite. You said that they said, is it a girl or a boy? And your parents said it's a penis. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's really good. So the, yes, I was being neutered from the very beginning of my life. <laughs> now, do you compose music? I can't really say that I compose. There are times when I'll uh, put together original arrangements. For example, I did, uh, I recorded an original arrangement of the Rhapsody in Blue. I performed it, you know, as a soloist with orchestra so many times, and I wanted to include it in a, a solo piano recording that I did at uh, Abbey Road Studios in London. So I composed my own arrangement of um, the piece, you know, uh, incorporating the orchestral interludes and uh, just paring it down for a, a piano solo. But I don't really think of myself as a composer. I uh, Now, these days, it, it seems like I'm more of a writer. I'm getting so much positive feedback from, from my writing, and that's really become a huge source of pleasure for me these days. Do you know Bertha Hope? What, what was the name? Bertha Hope. Bertha Hope? Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell. I'll look it up. Interesting, because Bertha is right there in New York, and she's probably uh-huh. the most noted jazz pianist in New oh, York. Oh, definitely. I'll definitely look her up. Absolutely, you should meet her. She is a a longtime member of our organization. Mm-hmm. So, tell me, have you? ever met with any pushback from men in the music industry? Of course. <laughs> of Do course. You I mean, mind just talking about it? Uh, sh- uh, not at all. I, um, uh, I tell in the, the book um, the story of having my first major recording contract and, um, you know, going through all the rigmarole of trying to get the, the uh, higher executives to sign on and the top executive who uh, made the ultimate decision. Uh, I remember him hinting at uh, trying to get me alone in his uh, vacation house in, uh, in upstate. And I'm thinking at the time, you know, I'm a youngster and I'm thinking, what on earth does this have to do with a recording contract? But uh, And there was another incident in Vienna when I was uh, living there. There was an orchestral conductor. People were telling me I needed to get to know him and spend time with him, and he could do so much for you, yada, yada. And when I met him at a party, he had his own orchestra in Vienna, and I noticed that many of the females were quite young in the organization, and I'd look over periodically and lots of them were just sitting there on his lap and he just you know took it for granted that young females were gonna coddle him like this you know to be able to hold on to his contract 
or to their contracts. But, you know, I, I made it very clear that I wasn't game for anything like this. So um, I didn't get a contract with him, which is uh, certainly a relief. But, yeah, there's several stories, you know, these, especially when you're engaged as a soloist with an orchestra and you have to meet alone with a conductor, uh, usually at his home. I've had just one experience of working with a woman conductor. And it can be very awkward for, uh, for young females who aren't prepared for this kind of intimidation. But, you know, if you get, keep your head straight and keep your focus fixed on what's in front of you. You know, uh, it's really important to just, you know, be prepared for what might come your way. Well, you know, it's funny, Nina, because I think of it, I, and I teach a lesson in my speech communication class on inappropriate behavior in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so sexual harassment is a whole lesson that I give to my students. And um, I say to them, it's happening in schools, in banks, in, you know, church, in corporations. And, but I never thought about it happening in an orchestra. I ne- oh, yeah. never dawned on me until this moment. And yes, that's well, probably think of, more apt. Yeah. Right, right. Think think of how many female conductors can you name? Oh, you well, know, I was yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just doing some uh, some research on uh, Antonia Brico the other day, and just uh, what she had to endure to to find her place as a conductor of a top orchestra. And I, I believe she founded a women's orchestra here in New York when she was at the height of her career. But this is, you know, this is a male bastion and they, they thrive on the power. You know, they, they hold on to that power to be able to determine which females get the job or get the contract and what they have to go through in order to get those contracts. You remember hearing about, uh, Placido Domingo and all of the um, the women in orchestras and in the opera companies, you know, whom he sexually assaulted. And this went no, on for decades. I've never heard that. I've never heard Oh, really? That. Placido yeah. Domingo. Yep. Google it. Google it. This went on mm. for decades and nobody did anything about it. I mean, even mm. James Levine mm. at the Metropolitan Opera. His His target was young boys, but Nobody did anything about it. In fact, the Metropolitan was paying out millions of dollars in settlements to these families of these boys, and it, it was just a tragedy. You know, and some of the some of the victims are coming forward now and demanding reparations for the from the Metropolitan Opera because their lives have been ruined, oh. and everybody knew it. You know, this, these rumors were just circulating all over the place. Everybody knew it. And nobody did anything about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that being said, you still prevail. And that's right. Where tell us where you are right now in your career. 
Well, we have expanded. I'm telling you. Um, I had done a, a documentary film a few years ago on the life of my father, as uh, he directed the Fifth Jubilee Singers, and he was he was also a concert pianist, and um, born in rural Georgia in 1921, and that film ended up winning some awards, and um, I went from there to television production. Uh, my partner and I produce a, a television show for Manhattan Cable, The Noshing with Nina Show. That's uh, broadcast uh, here in Manhattan every third Wednesday, and it's also broadcast in uh, in the outer boroughs and some other cities across the country. We're getting quite some uh, quite some support with that broadcast. And of course, you know, all of the shows are available online um, at noshwithnina.tv. So things mm-hmm. have really expanded, and now with the writing on top of that, it really um, I I write the the scripts for the show, so the writing you know has turned into blogging, and uh, with this memoir, these are um, three books of memoirs. The uh, the second book is going to be published later this year. That title is Practice What You Preach. And as I said before, the first one is Practicing for Love, and the third one is Practice Made Perfect. So, you know, in this this pandemic, we're really having to come up with creative ways to express ourselves artistically since we can't perform live. But, um, you know, there are videos we're producing and um, trying to get the work out there as, uh, as much as we can. Okay, and what is the format of Noshing with Nina? The Noshing with Nina show, it's a, it's an entertainment talk show. We have special guests and live performances, and our, the artists can come directly into the studio and discuss and promote their work. And uh, we, we wanted to create a platform where other artists can, you know, receive some support and recognition and um We've supported um, our artists in the community. We were hosting uh, an artist salon, uh, April and Ina Salon, that has its uh, its own uh, website and blog spot. And uh, that newsletter comes out every month. And uh, musically, I had done a project last year, uh, collaborated with a rapper, Nejma Nefertiti. I don't know if you know that name, but Nejma Nefertiti is getting a lot of of uh, success these days. She just recently won a major award and uh, she has a new album out, but we collaborated on, um, on a rap that she did. And I incorporated some fragments of the Greek piano concerto. (laughs) So it's really, it's like a trap song, you know, it's uh, something that the kids can dance to. And the title of that is, uh, is blue, white, and red. It, it dropped on Juneteenth of uh 2019 and then we uh we put out the video uh, uh, again on Juneteenth of uh of 2020. So uh take a look at that. I think uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's totally out of character for me. You know, there's footage in the studio and and listening to her rapping. She really wrote some some beautiful lyrics for this piece. So we're expanding. That's the one word I can use to describe what's going on with me artistically. That's great. That's beautiful. And that's what artists do. <laughs> reinvent, that's reinvent, right. reinvent, you know. 
So That's right. I'm giving you an invitation to join our organization. We have several classical musicians, and our membership of 380 people is from around the world, 16 countries and 22 states. So, you know, we're strong by numbers. We have Music Woman magazine coupled with Music Man magazine, which goes to the printer next week. And Mm. we're very proud of that publication. And that comes with your membership. So, you know, we encourage you to join us. Now, I would love to hear. Yeah, and you just do that at the website. WIJSF.org. So I would love to hear more music from you. Uh, where can we hear more music? Well, you can um, you can go to uh, the website uh, mm-hmm. TV. Also, um, you can Google the individual videos. In fact, if you Google my name. Nina Kennedy and videos, many of them will come up. The, the Schumann Wiedmung uh, that you heard at the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, that piece, by the way, I, I neglected to mention, was originally composed by Robert Schumann uh, really to celebrate his wife. He composed it to perform for her on their wedding day. And it was written originally for, for voice, voice and piano. And then that became so popular that uh, Franz Liszt, the pianist, made his own arrangement for solo piano. So that was what you heard in the recording. And um, mm-hmm. that video is available online. And um, also the performance at Dixon Place is available online. Um, mm-hmm. The Enough, we haven't, the F minor prelude, we haven't done the video yet, but we're working on um, on editing that. that. That footage has already been filmed. That was also one of the pieces that we filmed in Vienna. And there are a couple other pieces from that, that session. There's a recording of the, um, the Myra Hess arrangement of the Bach Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. That's uh, uh, one of the pieces on the program. And there's another Chopin piece, the uh, Scherzo in B minor. So, you know, we have a lot of material in the can, the can, but this this pandemic, I tell you, it's just made everything so difficult. So we're just having to uh, to work at a snail's pace, but we're slowly but surely getting it done. Just, uh, <laughs> just give us a little time. <laughs> okay. Now, I hear you mentioning Vienna. Did you live there? Did you spend time in Europe living there? Yes, I did. I, I lived there. Um, when was that? That was in the, um, right, that was around 2000. I was living there for a few years. I, I live in a few European cities in uh, in Vienna and in Cologne and in uh, in Paris. So, and in Amsterdam for a while, but Vienna uh, was really a special, it felt, felt like a home away from home for me. And um, we went back uh, that was in the fall of 2019, specifically to shoot these videos. The um, the director of the Bersendorfer Salon had offered to let us film there on location 
in the uh, in the studio, and uh, we got some wonderful footage. And the people there were just so sweet to us, and just you know, just gave us the keys. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm playing actually on the piano that um, Oscar Peterson preferred that he owned, and he did most of his recordings on. And this mm. is the same version that uh, that Michael Jackson owned. So, you know, we included that in some of our, our um, background information on that shoot. We did a whole episode on the Noshing with Nina show about being in Vienna and that, uh, that shoot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And when you say we, you sound like you have a team. Yes, yes. My partner, April Gibson, who is also my, uh, the producer of the Noshing with Nina show, in fact, she has just been nominated for a Be Free Award here in New York for her uh, her role as producer of that show. So we're very honored about that and excited that uh, those awards are coming up. And uh, in fact, she won a Be Free Award for the Noshing with Nina show a couple of years ago. And um, she's the editor for all of these audio recordings that you hear and edits the music videos. So she's uh, she's our techie person, our techie go-to person. <laughs> okay. Now, what about in New York proper? Do you perform there? Well, not now, not during the pandemic. But, um, it, yes, it's really made things very difficult. But um, the most recent uh, performance here in the city was um, at the Dixon Place Studio, which is over here in the, or, well, the theater, which is in the uh, the East Village, and um, that performance they uh, they recorded that we were able to include on the uh, the clip that you heard earlier. But it's it's really been difficult. You know, we are so looking to this, uh, looking forward to this pandemic being over, so we can get back out there. We uh, we really miss live audiences. I know so many of my colleagues are, are really suffering, you know, and not being able to share their gifts with a live audience. It's uh, it's something we really need. Yeah, well, performance is addictive. My daughter, mm-hmm. I sang for 60-plus years, and I loved every minute of it, but I never felt compelled to get on a stage because I had been on stage since I was four years old, so it wasn't like I missed being on stage at all. But my daughter always expresses this need to be on stage. And mm-hmm. I just never had that feeling. <laughs> it was my, you know, it was always what I did. It was second nature to me to be mm-hmm. on stage. So I didn't ever, when I wasn't on stage, it was like, oh, I'm <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, when when you're practicing and preparing, you know, I I for one always have the audience response in mind when I'm uh, approaching the end of a piece. So it's it's very sexual in nature, you know, when you just like pace your rhythm and then you start to speed up and then you start to crescendo and then you go for this climax. And you just want to make them scream by the time you're finished. So that's something that you really, you know, you keep in mind when you go out there. It's, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to recreate that same 
dynamic when you're in a recording studio, but oh, it's yeah. still geared geared toward the audience response, having that in mind. So yeah, I know what she's saying. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But I I think even when we come back around again uh, to live performances, I think there's mm-hmm. going to be a different air about it. I don't think it's going to be exactly the same as it used to be. You know, mm-hmm. things things have changed that dramatically. Yes, yes. But we are so excited about our publication. I mean, one thing people can do during a pandemic is read. So we have been documenting the lives of women and men who pluck strings. And that's what the next uh, issue will be about. So, you know, here we are. Listen, I want to hear you play this rock on and off again. I want to play it for okay. a minute and a half. We'll be right back. <laughs> Rachmaninoff live back in wow. 1930, yeah, 1932 in uh, in Macon, Georgia, when uh, Rachmaninoff was touring the South, and uh, he tells the story in in the film. I wanted to get him on film uh, documenting that experience, and uh, he said he had to sit in the segregated balcony with his mother, but that concert changed his life. It's really what made him decide to become a pianist and uh, he he totally imitated Rachmaninoff's playing after seeing that concert, witnessing that concert. And that imitation got him a scholarship to study here at Juilliard, at the Juilliard Prep. So mm-hmm. Rachmaninoff is really a big part of my family's life. Wow. That's so interesting. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, do you have? Oh, wait, 
Sorry. I, I hit something. Sorry. <laughs> Do you have okay. children? You have children? I don't have children. Okay. I wasn't able to. Nothing uh, to apologize. To Just asking. <laughs> <laughs> And but so, I've adopted you, quite a few uh, protégés, so I. That's I, what uh, I was about you know, to say. Yes, keep that that young blood around me, because uh, mm. Lord knows I I couldn't maneuver in this uh, the cyber age without youthful input. Yes, do you teach? I taught piano for a while. Um, I haven't been teaching during during the pandemic. But uh, that's something I, I, I may return to. I've gotten a few offers and uh, something I, I am thinking about for the future. Okay. Right. Well, I think uh, the people that I know, like we have a member, Sunny Paxton, and she teaches in California. And she teaches nonstop online, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I know I have several friends that, who are doing that. Yeah, she's in the habit of doing that, so that mm-hmm. that makes it a, a little different, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm just, you know, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure for me to meet new women musicians because I started this because for thirty years. I toured. I lived in Switzerland for eight years. Oh, yeah. And, and uh-huh. I did, I performed in Vienna, but it was like I was there five days. That was it. <laughs> you know, and that was, I don't even remember the year that it was about 95 or something like that. But anyway, uh-huh. um, uh, I totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Well, since you mentioned Vienna, I'll just jump in. My my first trip to Vienna, I was engaged to appear as a piano soloist with the Chicago Sinfonietta, and they were giving they were opening the uh, the Gershwin Festival, and mm-hmm. so my debut in uh, in Vienna was at the Musikverein, the big concert hall where they have the New Year's concert, and that conductor was uh, Paul Freeman. You remember him? No. Black, I'm not well No. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Him. I knew I knew Call uh Coleridge Taylor. Yes. yes. Perkin. Yeah. I yes, I knew Taylor him. Perkins, yes. Right. Uh-huh. But Paul Oh, Freeman. my my grandmother met him in uh in London. Mhm. Mhm. Okay, so so you were saying that you met Paul Freeman? Paul Freeman, he was the conductor of the concert, mm-hmm. and I was the piano soloist for both the Gershwin I Got Rhythm Variations and mm-hmm. the Rhapsody in Blue, both okay. uh, both with the Chicago Sinfonietta. Yeah, that was a really a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, I time, I was really struggling in this country, and I just didn't know how I was going to penetrate. You know, I've got two glass ceilings I'm battling against, both as a female and as an African-American. And then in mm-hmm. Vienna, it just—it felt like I was just so embraced immediately. You know, I didn't have to qualify myself. I didn't have to explain. They just, you know, they just listened to me play, and that was it. It was like, come right. on in. <laughs> You're part of the family now. 
And yeah. I, I spent several years there. I really, really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, well, they, they have a deeper appreciation of the arts. That's right. You know. That's right. And then when, when I came, oh, I know the point I was trying to make. So when I came back home, I had worked with hundreds of musicians in several countries. And none of them, no, two of them were women. One mm. in both, one was Dutch, but I sang with her in Switzerland. And then one was German, and I sang with her in Amsterdam. Other than mm-hmm. that, I met, I, I performed with no other women, none. And then when I came home, um, I did a concert with Kim Clark and Bertha Hope, whom I had sung with years before. So that was four women. Then two drummers, Paula Hampton and, no, it was Paula Hampton. And then there was a bass player, uh, Carlene Ray. So it was six women in my entire career that I had performed with. So that's what happened in 97, I started teaching children about women musicians, and I mm. would find them. Like, Cab Calloway's sister was also a big band leader, but because she was a woman, nobody knew about her. Mar- uh, Mary Lou Williams was the mother of Bebop, but nobody gave her the credit for it. Right, so right. I wrote a book called Amazing Music Women with 40 women in it. Of course, most of them are singers because mm-hmm. the singers were the ones that were given the most play, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sarah Vaughn and Carmen McRae played piano, but they were still known as singers, okay? Right. So this right. book turned into a workshop series that I did through the school system. And I taught over 10,000 children about women in jazz. And now I do a lecture on blues women, the first civil rights workers. So that's why I find women like you. You know, I've known about you for a couple of years, you know, but- Well, we appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, join us and help us. If you don't do anything, but when I send you the magazine for your membership, you show it to somebody. You Mm -hmm. contribute an article about somebody else and get somebody to write an article about you that is fresh Mm -hmm. for the magazine. Because this magazine is going to be our document our archive of women's music is called Music Woman. <laughs> you know. Beautiful. Beautiful. So soon as you, you know, it, the, the, it goes to print next week. And then I should have them by maybe the 18th, 25th. And then I start mailing them to our members and to our distribution places. 
So I'm excited. You know, it's been a rough year. We've all had very difficult um, adaptations. You know, I lost 37 people. Nina. Oh, my goodness. 37 people. People that you know, too. You know, people Mm -hmm. that you've heard of that I'm Mm -hmm. close to because, you know, I've been in the jazz world since I was 20. You know, I've been really since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm from New York. I'm from Queens. And I used to sing, uh, not sing, swim in Count Basie's pool as a child. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I've been, but I live in Florida, which I call the sixth borough of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Now, have you heard of Donna Wang Friedman? Now, that name rings a bell. She is a classical pianist right there in New York. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just had her on my show. I think it was last week or the week before. So uh-huh. yes, you know the women musicians. I gather them. They come to me, and let's do good things together. Absolutely. Yes, we appreciate yeah. you. We need somebody like you, especially now. Because it's uh, it's really been hard on us this uh, this pandemic. Well, I want to play for you my piece that was a classical piece I thought until Freddie Hubbard recorded it. So it's called Sweet Return, and it was recorded at Atlantic Records in 1983. So I want to thank you for being my guest. And I look forward to talking to you some more. And if you have anything else that you would like to say, let me know. And we'll have you on again. Okay? Okay. Thank you so much, Joan. Looking forward to getting the magazine. Okay. Take care now. You too. 